0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit nettlemeadowcheeseandspirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, meadowcheeseandspirits.com.
2: I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Keeping kosher has changed significantly in modern times, due largely to the kosher certification of so many products on grocery shelves. We'll learn the history of how that all came to be today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palacio on this weekly journey through culinary history. And you know, there are more than 300 kosher certifying agencies in this country, and all of them have different symbols, and it can all get pretty confusing, though I guess there are really only five predominant ones. Well, we'll hear more about that. My guest today is going to straighten all that out for us and tell us the history of all of this certification process, and that is Roger Horowitz. Roger has written an entertaining and very informative book called Kosher USA. Um, And one of the reviewers said, It's the real thing, a detailed yet comprehensible textbook on American kosher. uh, And using that recognizable, it's the real thing, is because the full title of the book is Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and other tales of modern food. Roger is a food historian and director of the Center for History, the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. He's the author of Negro and White, Unite and Fight, a Social History of Industrial Unionism in the Meatpacking uh, Trade, and Putting Meat on the American Table, Taste, Technology, Transformation. And of course most re- recently his book, in which he tr- Kosher USA, in which he traces the history and the dramatic rise of kosher food products, specifically how they made their way into the American food culture on in the mass market and the and industrialization of consumer products. Welcome, Roger. Well,
3: thanks for having me on the show, Linda, I appreciate it.
2: So this is a history of the industrialization basically of kosher within the American industrialization of the food, of our food system, right?
3: That's right. The, here's the question the book tries to understand. I mean, kosher law is probably the oldest food regulations that we know of in the world today. And it goes back to the Jewish Torah, it goes back to antiquity. Um, it's rooted in that time. And now we have a modern world with a completely different food system. So what the book tries to explore is how do you fit those kosher rules into an industrial food system, which is constituted on an utterly different basis. Right. Well, I mean, that's what I try to chart.
2: And and it's interesting because anyone who you know picks up a, a a food item on a grocery shelf and not not from the kosher aisle because there are the kosher aisles, obviously, but they will notice those little symbols the uh, Pariv for Passover or or um, Parv for Passover or um, the kosher symbols. And that's on everyday products that everyone uses. So- well,
3: Linda, I, I, I actually think that most people don't even notice those symbols or know what they mean. They think they're something like you know, a, you know, registered mark or, or things like that. Huh. But if you yeah. if you take, I mean, I mean, I, I do this when I give talks. You can pick up a bottle of water. You can pick up any number of common products, and you look at it, and you'll see a little U in a circle. You'll see a K in a circle, a K in a star. Those are trademarks. Those symbols are owned by Religious organizations that authorize their use on consumer products if those products comply with kosher requirements. That's what those are. They're, they're, they're trademarks. And they're the means through which uh, Jewish Orthodox organizations endorse food as being kosher. It's under the U.S. law, but it's a voluntary process by which firms agree to comply with the requirements that they dictate for making the food kosher. Uh
2: huh. So, then things must have gotten rather confusing when people looking for kosher items found out that maybe something wasn't
3: kosher. Well, the, well, the, the kosher laws, you know, they, they, they go back a long way, and they're part of the way Judaism engages with the real world. I mean, Judaism is a religion of practice, and the debates and the, the about what you should do are not about how many angels can you fit on the head of the pin, but whether this fish has scales. You know the case of Sturgeon. It's very practical things, but how do you understand the world within the lines of this kind of law? The problem that industrial food creates is that it's not so simple. What's in an industrial food? Kosher law is based upon what is acceptable and what is not. You know, pigs aren't acceptable, cows are. You can't have milk with meat. Okay, you separate those items in your foods. That also works well when everything is kind of by itself. You know, in a pre-industrial world. But our industrial products are filled with all sorts of stuff, their flavors and chemicals and preservatives and colors and all sorts of ingredients that do all kinds of things. And so that makes these laws of separation difficult to enforce, difficult to understand, because you have to understand not just what this is. You know, is it an apple or is it a, is it a peach? But, you know, what is the stuff that's inside that can of beans that would allow it to be kosher or not kosher? That is the challenge.
2: Huh, right. Um, so even from early times, there were products that we didn't really recognize as kosher that, that actually were. Um, I know that you've met, you have mentioned in your book and, and in talks. Take us back to when all this, when, you know, when, when this industrialization of food started in America, then when some controls had to come into play.
3: Well, historians have placed the early 20th century as a time uh, when branded food products become commonplace teens, uh, 20s. Uh, companies like A&P spread out and products disseminate through the, through the markets of the United States that are made by producers in from faraway far places. Uh, these are marketed to Jews, often in Yiddish advertising and Jewish papers, but it's not clear if they're kosher or not. You know, Aunt Jemima is a wonderful advertisement um, in Hebrew. Promoting Aunt Jemima speaking Hebrew. It's very, very humorous. <laughs> Pillsbury dough. And of course, Coca-Cola is one product that advertises aggressively, uh, seeking out uh, Jewish consumers. And the, the, the coke is kind of the, the beginning of this debate and this implementation of kosher law inside modern food. Uh, it's the first iconic American product to accept kosher requirements. And that uh, was the inter- result of the intervention um, of a man named Rabbi Tobias Geffen, a rabbi in, in Atlanta. Um, who gets involved in answering the question he's getting from rabbis, is co kosher uh, These questions come because uh, Coca-Cola is not only is it popular among Jews as a drink, it, there's a practice of serving at the children the Passover Seder in place of wine, so which makes its kosher status particularly important because of the place of Passover in, in Jewish ritual use. Uh, he investigates it. And the short of it is, he discovers there's a big problem because of the ingredients in Coke, uh, particularly an ingredient called glycerin, a very common ingredient that's throughout the food system. And glycerin, the problem with glycerin was that glycerin was derived ultimately from animal fats. And those animal fats included animals that were not kosher and not, did not comply with these laws of separation. So Geffen says, sorry, it's not kosher. Big problem. But then he says to Coke, but there's a way you can fix that problem. Very important uh, innovation. He says you can fix that problem by getting glycerin from vegetable sources because vegetable fat also can be used to generate uh, glycerin. Uh, so he, Coke says, okay, we'll try for a solution. They turn to a Procter & Gamble, who is already supplying Coca-Cola with ingredients. Procter & Gamble says, aha, we have a product called Crisco out there. Hmm. kosher that draws from vegetable cottonseed oil. Maybe we can make a glycerin from cottonseed oil. They do; they sell it to Coke. Coke puts it in uh, the, the the Coca-Cola syrup, and gets says, "Okay, it can be kosher because we now have an ingredient that is not from uh, animal sources, from uh, from a trace from unkosher animal sources." Um, now, the the importance of this of this whole whole issue this is a, a complicated struggle that I detail in the book. Is it establishes a principle that for food to be kosher. Every single ingredient in it has to be kosher, no matter how minute, no matter what it is. Its source has to be kosher. So and the food,
2: great. so that would be the food coloring, right? The, the food coloring has the to flavor. be
3: kosher. Flavors have to be kosher. Everything, one hundred percent of the ingredients in a product have to be kosher for that product to be kosher. And that pushes kosher law towards chemistry and towards understanding food manufacturing. Again, this is part of the practical element of following the Jewish law, is that you have to understand the world around you. Well, now you've got to understand manufacturing. You've got to understand chemistry. So kosher law, after a period of some struggle, becomes very science-based by the 1950s, and the 1960s. And today, there are these kosher certification agencies Often have you know, PhD chemists who they consult with. The rabbis involved with this at least have a practical knowledge of the particular industries that they that they that they supervise. Uh, it very much is embedded in the way foods are made today. Uh, and again, with this requirement that every single item in a food has to be kosher for that food to be kosher, very important principle is established.
2: Hmm. Well, then, what makes kosher salt kosher?
3: <laughs> um. Well, that's interesting. Salt is one of these products that is intrinsically kosher unless things are added to it. You can have things added to salt. That could make it non-kosher. Kosher salt refers to the purpose of the salt, not to something uh, special about it. Um, kosher salt is, are large pieces of salt, and they're used to kosher meat. That's how they get the kosher salt. Uh, this is a requirement of... Jewish law, that you can't consume blood. Very important ritual uh, you know, required from the Torah, it's repeated three times, thou shalt not consume blood, because blood is, is life. You're eating life when you consume blood. So part of the requirement for, for koshering meat is that not only does the meat have to be killed in a certain way, which we could talk about later, but then it has to be koshered. It has to be treated with salt to draw the blood out of the meat. Uh, similarly, uh, chicken has to be koshered. And so kosher salt gets its name because it was so widely used in the meatpacking industry mm-hmm. and in the butcher shops of the mid-20th century. Kosher salt was a particular kind of item because that was the kind of salt that worked best for koshering of meat, a mm-hmm. large grain salt, probably larger than you'd want to be sprinkling on your, on your food at home. Um, and it's interesting the way kosher salt has passed into our vernacular as a particular kind of salt disconnected from kosher as a dietary requirement, it now refers to its size and its right. place in the system. And it pops up all the time in the recipes use kosher salt. Well, the important point is not for the, for the person making it, is not that it's kosher per se, unless you're Jewish, but that it's large in that area. Hmm. You can have salt that's not kosher. So, salt also can become a kosher certified product, but that's a table salt can be kosher certified as well.
2: All right. Well, there, according to um, your book and other sources that I was reading, also that there were some contentious debates um, among rabbis over the incorporation of modern science into this Jewish law. Is did the rabbis also resist the modernization of the food products?
3: It's very difficult for them to to accept. I'd say the 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 big issue is this. You know, in the rabbis who come to America. Uh, in the early parts of the 20s, but yeah, really well to the 50s, are mostly European trained. Mm-hmm. And they don't speak English. They speak Hebrew and Yiddish or the other languages of the countries they come from. And they came from a world where the rabbis were the authorities in the shtetls and in the Jewish communities where they operated. Uh, you come to this new world and you have this thing called science. And you have to share your authority and to share your authority and to admit a lack of knowledge. Um, in the eyes of some um demean them it was it was it was improper to accept that to admit that they didn't know these things and that secular knowledge okay secular knowledge was essential to understand the application of religious law that's a big difference from you know being in lithuania in the 1850s uh, geffen is important rabbi geffen is important because he has no trouble accepting science he's i think the first rabbi to really Grapple with science and use science to address this, these kinds of these kinds of problems. Um, so that I think is 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 the issue there. Um, the rabbis themselves, in terms of these kinds of uh, foods, um, they they are resistant because they're afraid that they're not kosher. But they're but they're tugged in the direction of addressing them because the people who they are supposed to lead are going to A and P's and they're buying products. They're mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's there. I mean, there's a whole. Uh, issue. I don't get into the book, but it's funny. There's a whole issue in the in the late uh, forties, early fifties, about kosher cake mixes, because kosher ka- kosher because you know, cake mixes come on the market in the in the late nineteen uh, forties.
2: Wow, the Duncan and Hines. And
3: housewives <laughs> want to be able to make cakes with these cake mixes, because what a what a wonderful transformation! You can make these beautiful cakes, and you don't have to make it from scratch. And there's all this back and forth in the literature about how we're going to get kosher cake mixes, because what's happening is the housewives are buying the cake mixes. They're looking at the boxes, they're reading the labels, and in the labels, nothing in the labels indicates that there's a forbidden product in there. So they're saying that we have the knowledge, the housewives say we have the knowledge to determine ourselves that these cake mixes are, in fact, acceptable to serve to my children. So here's the issue for the rabbis, if they don't get out in front of the issue, as it's called, They lose authority as to who says it's kosher. Mm. Who does the authority say it's kosher? Is it the women in the home who are shopping and reading the labels? Are they the the authority? What happens to the rabbis in this world where, in fact, other sets of authority are deciding that something's kosher? So the rabbis really, uh, they really have no choice. They have to address issues of science and food production unless they become irrelevant in the way that the Jews are deciding what food is kosher. Right.
2: Well, and of course, then there's the other big issue they have to face, and that is how did they get into the the, the factories, the industries, and convince these food producers to uh, to alter any ingredients or to produce products that were kosher?
3: It's very hard for them to do that for a long time. And there's some exceptions early on. Coke is a big product that does so because they want all the consumers that are there um, but what what starts to push these you know these producers in that direction really I'd say in the '60s and the '70s is the importance of the Northeast food market, and they recognize that if they want to introduce new products, they want to be able to sell them to Jews in that particular huge area of the country. And kosher certification eliminates a barrier to consumption by Jews of their products. And the uh, the rabbis, uh, especially the Orthodox Union, has a very Sophisticated marketing program, which I which I talk about. I mean, really top notch marketing program, which makes this case relentlessly to the food companies that if you want to sell throughout New York City, New Jersey, Massachusetts, in the Northeast, you know, kosher certification opens the door to that marketplace. And if you don't certify your products, you're going to face resistance to these products. The very con- competitive consumer marketplace at the time, the argument does have an, an impact. Really, beginning in the '60s and the '70s. Uh, but the orthodox union especially does something else too is that they train their rabbis to be production consultants and they give very detailed advice to firms about how to turn their products kosher what they have to do inside the factories where they can find the ingredients that are kosher certified so they don't just stand back and fold their arms and say this is what you have to do they really go down to the factory floor they sit with people who are making their recipes and say aha you don't have to get glycerin from meat sources such-and-such such a firm makes glycerin from vegetable sources, and it's the same price. So there's your problem solved. Get that glycerin from that company, and that eliminates problem number one. And they would go right down the list, and they would source kosher ingredients and show them how to, how to find that. So you both have the pull of the market wanting to have unimpeded access to the Northeast market. And of course, Florida's important. Los Angeles, those are important markets. But also, you also have the helping hand of the rabbis um, and in that sense, Rabbi Geffen again is the uh, pacemaker by, by telling Coke back in the 30s oh, here's your problem and here's your solution. Same thing happens in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It happens today. And that's huh. important for how they, they are able to achieve these numbers that you now have where 30-40% of the products in the supermarket. Are kosher certified? All
2: right. Well, I would imagine there. And well, I'm not imagine, but I know from your reading in, in your book is that there's also um, the inspection of the not only the ingredients but the facilities as well.
3: Well, one of the rules of separation that's very important uh, concerns the possibility of the taste or the flavor of a product getting on another one. Uh, and the the story that the example is given is that if you have a non kosher product in manufacturing. And running through the and it goes through all the pipes and all the machines, and then you put a kosher product in there. It's like in the home, taking a frying pan, cooking bacon in it, taking the bacon out, not cleaning it, and then putting in some kosher meat. That kosher meat is contaminated by the bacon because bacon is, comes from pigs and is a prescribed product. So there's an enormous attention to cleanliness in the factories and making sure that you separate in manufacturing these kinds of products. That's why knowledge of manufacturing is, is so important and it's amazing to talk to these rabbis about how, how intimately they understand about factory operations and how carefully they monitor those. Um, what, what most people don't, don't appreciate is how influential these kosher requirements are on the way factories organize production. Uh, in factories that make kosher and non-kosher uh, foods, and many factories do, there's a whole uh, sequencing of production that's designed to minimize the impact, the disruptive impact of kosher laws. There's levels of control over ingredients uh, embedded in inventory systems that help to regulate these kind of kosher requirements. Um, and the, again, the Orthodox Union and these, fruit and these certification agencies facilitate this by companies by, by creating uh, inventory systems, databases that allow them to access uh, information about kosher ingredients. Hmm. I mean, there is, there is something called a universal kosher database with 400,000 uh, or so items in it, overwhelmingly ingredients. So, that if you're a food manufacturer and you want to create a kosher product, you can sync your computers with the universal kosher database and find out kosher ingredients to make a product kosher.
2: Oh, that's, that's how close great.
3: that connects just now. Yes. Yeah. Well, and this is this again, but this it goes back to the idea that Judaism is a religion of practice kosher laws have to engage with the real world, and the real world in industrialization of food is manufacturing, so they have to draw those lines. And they've been very, very good at drawing those lines and reducing the cost involved to almost nothing. And, of course, if you can convince a large food company that you can gain more consumers without having to spend more money, that's a very persuasive argument.
2: Right. Well, there are a few other great topics that I want to get to right after we take a break. One of them would be the story of Jell-O. So stay okay. tuned.
1: Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow Cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy kunik, Nettle Meadows' trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Anne Saxelby said, kunik. it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990 and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the cheese and spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit That's Nettle Meadow Cheese and Spirits.com. That's N E T T L E, Meadow Cheese and Spirits.com.
2: Hi, welcome back. I'm speaking with Roger Horowitz, author of Kosher USA: How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food. Interesting tales, Roger. Um, I know that you have an interesting story. What makes this book so wonderful? I have to tell people first is that you you really do intersperse the the factual with a lot. Not that it's not that it's not facts that you're interspersing it with, but wonderful. Um, stories of your own, stories of your family, and stories of people you know. Uh, As many people have mentioned, a memoir, almost, of of your life, which I think really puts things into, um, if you will, a believable perspective or um, a perspective that, you know, you lived this. So, you know, I think I congratulate you on managing to make that mix. Not easy to do.
3: Well, it, it, it you know the, the book's opening chapter for explaining why I wrote it is called Uncle Stu's Question, and that Uncle Stu is my uncle, and he asked me what happened to kosher meat, and that's you know sort of how the story began, and then of course I talked to my family about it. I grew up in a kosher home, and for reasons I go into in the book, I got many family stories as my parents were declining and they passed away in the middle of my writing the book. So there's all these stories there. So of course you know you have this information. And you have, you know, a personal connection, right. you know, so, so I, I, I bring that in not, hopefully it doesn't overwhelm it. You know, my family was not important in the kosher food industry. They're just Jews who kept kosher. So yeah. that, is, that is part of the, part of the story uh, that, that, that's leavened, I think, throughout the book.
2: And it does, it, it does as I say, kind of it makes it very readable, first of all, and I like that. But you do tell a wonderful story about Jello. Can you share that oh. with us?
3: Well, Jell-O, um, you know, my mother and I made Jell-O all the time in the early 60s, you know, when I was a kid, a typical American story. Uh, and uh, I discovered as I was doing the research that Jell-O was an incredibly controversial product in Jewish circles in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And actually, whether you ate Jell-O was one of the defining lines. Between being an Orthodox Jew and being a conservative Jew. And I was, you know, my family was conservative. So the simple act of making jello was a statement, if you will, about what kind of kosher you, 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 um, you followed. Uh, the issue with, uh, with jello was a big issue. It had to do with gelatin. And gelatin, like glycerin, comes from animal products. And those animal products generally were not kosher. Because you simply didn't have enough kosher, you know, pigs, and the, you, know, you know no kosher pigs, but kosher cows degenerated. So uh, it goes back to the to the Geffen question. You know, what makes something kosher or not kosher? And the interesting part of the story is that for a good period of time in the mid-century, Orthodox rabbis considered gelatin gelatin that was made from non-kosher animals to be kosher. This is an embarrassment, I think, to them, they think now, perhaps, but I'm, I don't treat it that way. I treat it as, as part of the kosher law trying to figure out what to do with these kind of transformed products. Of course, we don't think of gelatin and jello as coming from pigskins and beef bones. You, know, you don't think about that. It. It's kind of a nice, pretty thing, but that's what it is. <laughs> Basically, you're eating you know, beef bones and pigskins that have been boiled and turned into, into a gelatin. That's, that's what it is. So it's not vegetarian at all. And for Jews or kosher, the fact that it has this background of coming from non-kosher animals was a huge issue. Uh, what rabbis felt at the time was that it was so transformed, it was so different from its source, that the prohibitions about the sources, the non-kosher beef bones, the pigskins, lapsed. Those went away. It was a new product, had a new face. And there was a term for that, the var hadash, a new face. And that was widely uh, accepted among Orthodox rabbis, and it results in Jell-O becoming certified kosher in 1950 by leading Orthodox rabbis, leading you know authoritative, respected European-born Orthodox rabbis endorsed Jell-O as kosher. Um, And this is a this is a huge controversy. I mean, Jell-O is a very prominent product. It's advertised all over the radio, the Jack Benny, and all these people involved in it has gelatin in it. And there were many Jews at the time who felt that gelatin was not kosher because mm-hmm. of that. But to have jello accepted, oh my goodness. What is what and, and the question for them was, what else can go into modern industrial food for it still to be kosher? If you can transform pig skins and beef bones so much that it becomes kosher, can't everything be transformed? Are there any barriers to what you can put inside kosher food. That's why it was was symbolic in a very practical sense. What was the law? Well, there's a huge controversy. It's reversed. The certifications reversed. The the rabbis who certified it are forced to to repudiate it and the whole big thing. And by the early 60s, the Orthodox have pretty much rejected this idea of transformation. They say, no, something which goes through a chemical transformation, it remains connected in some way, maybe it's metaphysical, um, to its origins in a non-kosher product. If that's the case, it's non-kosher. So Jell-O, you know, it's a big deal, both as a as a product itself, but more in terms of a defining line of kosher law that it that it draws. That it really consolidates a, a pretty stringent kosher law, a set of rules that say that everything, for anything to be kosher, its roots are what 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 matters the most. Right. That is that's what it is there. And I one thing I point out in my book that some of the Orthodox have not liked is that there was a perfectly strong legal tradition in kosher law to accept gelatin as kosher, to accept a product that began as non-kosher to become kosher. There, there's a basis for that. And it's like any legal tradition. There are, there are minority and minority, majority traditions, and you can, you can go back and forth between them. And this is a shift to a more stringent type of law. But those who felt that the conservatives still feel this transformation can take place, there's a perfectly sound legal basis for that as well in kosher law.
2: Hmm. Well, it is, and you talk about there are a couple terms that you, that you use and, and very interesting in terms of the, um, the certification of kosher, unintended consequences and the food chain effect. Um, and the food chain effect, I'm, I'm getting this now from talking about gelatin, but um, that you talked about specifically with, with another very popular item, and that's Oreos.
3: Well, here's the food chain effect. I've explained why some products might want to be kosher to take care of certain markets. But that argument you know, works for some products, but it doesn't work for many others. And, and you know, the Oreo is a huge product of kosher in 1997. But you just can't make a consumer demand argument with Oreo. I mean Nabisco. I mean, what are they? I mean, you know, this is a, one of the giant products in the world today, and they don't have—they don't need to introduce it to the East Coast. They don't need to make it penetrate Los Angeles, New York City, Boston markets with their products. I mean, it's everywhere. So, how do you explain it going kosher? What, what's in it for them? And the story comes out of having to think about food consumers as not just being individual consumers, but institutional consumers. And there's a whole area in food studies that needs to be explored, the power of institutions determining consumption patterns. The issue with Oreos was not a problem of individual Jewish consumers. The problem was something called cookies and cream ice cream, that Oreos was very invested in selling through various kinds of institutions. Um, Since the Oreo was not kosher, the Orthodox Union would not certify cookies and cream ice cream made with Oreos as kosher for that reason. And that resulted in institutional food suppliers not wanting to carry the Oreo brand of cookies and cream ice cream. And why? Because you know, Sodexo and Aramark and all these big companies would service, among their various clients, were some kosher consumers. And they didn't want to have a problem of two types of cookies and cream ice cream. These are mass producers. They don't want to have two things. They want to have one thing. Fine. We want the one that's kosher. And so they wanted all their products to be kosher. And Oreos was blocked from getting into this market because the Oreo was... I mean, Nabisco was blocked from getting in there because the Oreo wasn't kosher. Not because individual consumers were, were clamoring for their kosher Oreos, because Aramark, Sodexo, Big chains were not purchasing the cookies and cream ice cream with Nabisco, from Nabisco, and they could not sell, then, the Oreos to these big institutional suppliers. So that provides a spur for them to figure it out. They discover, as I've explained it before, that actually it's not going to cost them very much to make this change, and, and they do it. But that's the food chain effect, is that these suppliers want kosher products because it's simpler. because They want to have one kind of product. So if you go back up the food chain, that, that is to say to the colors and flavorings and things like that, not 30 or 40% are kosher. It's 70, 80, 90% are kosher. I mean, almost all food colors today that are produced are kosher. Hmm. Because they want to sell them to firms that make food. Firms do not want to have two kinds of of red, you know, one kosher and non-kosher. That's a recipe for confusion in manufacturing. You want one. You want the one that's kosher. Oils too, you can go right down the list. So that's the food chain effect, and that food chain effect facilitates making products kosher. Because if you're a, a producer of a consumer product and you're talking to the OU about how do I make this, you know, kosher, the OU can show you that there are comparable products to the ones you're using that may not be kosher. The ones you're using, there's kosher products, same price. You can use that one, and that makes it relatively easy for a lot of producers of food. Depending depends upon the ingredients, you know. That there are obstacles there still but it makes it relatively easy, in some cases, to shift a product to being kosher. Right. That's, your, that's your food chain effect. Now, the unintended consequence of all this is fascinating. The unintended consequence are the large numbers of people who buy kosher products who aren't Jewish and don't really, are not concerned with the kosher laws because the kosher laws now are, are quite strict. You know there's no pork in the product, so therefore Muslims buy kosher products as a cipher, if you will, as equivalent to halal requirements. Again, they know there's no gelatin in there that is pork products. There's no glycerin in there with pork. They can have that kind of reliance. So, again, to connect this with your food chain effect, prisons are important purchasers of institutional kosher products, especially things like drinks, uh, fruit drinks, or things like that, uh, oils, salad dressings. You know, a lot of that consumed because the, the people who are there are many people in prison who are Muslims. Of course, there's many who are not, but there are enough in there that it solves the problem. Muslims in the are, are relieved, or if they're, they're assured, if these products are certified kosher, that there isn't a remnant of pork in there. All right. So you put those things together, and you have this remarkable expansion of demand for, for kosher products, much of which has to do with non-Jews, and none of which was the intent of what took place. <laughs> Rabbi Geffen, the Orthodox Union, they are not thinking strategically as a business. How can I generate demand for kosher products among non-jews. No, they're concerned about facilitating observance. They want to keep Jews observant and they feel that in this world today of industrial food, that means they have to try to get industrial foods to be kosher. Otherwise, the temptation to just depart from kosher practices will become too great. That is always what they're concerned about. And it, you know, and to have this this the non-kosher demand well, that has everything to do with the world that we live in today, where people are very concerned about the food they eat. And kosher becomes one of the ways that people, it's a source of information that consumers with particular interests use to accomplish their ends, ends which are, in fact, quite distinct from following the kosher law.
2: Well, and, and certainly we can see that they uh, the kosher certification is has set an example for regulating food safety and labeling. Um, in today's, you know, for today's food safety conscious world, I remember as being a parent in the late 70s and, and through the 80s, you didn't want to give hot dogs all of a sudden got a bad name, and you didn't want to give hot dogs to your kid, but your kid wanted hot dogs. You read all these horrible stories about, you know, where the what the scraps were, what the meat was that was going into it. And somehow we could trust... Hebrew national beef franks, so then, then of course, you know everyone would buy a kosher product because we figured that was that would have um, you know no no tainted scraps of, of pork in it, um, but that's as you said unintended consequences affecting the the food safety and labeling is certainly a large one.
3: Well, there's there's, this, there's, a, there's a reverse side to that. I mean, one of the things I argue in the book is that the requirements in the last say 10, 15 years or greater labeling requirements on food has facilitated kosher certification. Because now firms have tremendous uh, record-keeping requirements involving ingredients, involving uh, possible allergens. Uh, There's uh, the the hazards and control procedures that have to be filed. There's there's all these rules that, that that affect the way firms do things and they have to collect records. So firms now have very sophisticated inventory control systems which kosher requirements can be inserted into, and that record keeping is exactly what the rabbis need. So there's a there's, a, there's an interesting relationship here. Again, an unintended consequence of food regulation facilitating the expansion of kosher certification. Uh, very very interesting.
2: Uh, process. Well, there. Uh, I before we we have to wrap up. There are so many wonderful, interesting. Um, Tales, and of course we didn't even touch on meat, and that's one of your bailiwicks because you wrote the whole book on meat and in uh, the meat industry. There's two chapters on meat in this book. There's a lot about meat. A lot about meat, but of course these, it's this, the kosher certification is uh, so much about labels, as you just said. And are there really 300 labels, but which ones are really the the, let's say the kosher ones, the, the acceptable well, ones? Well, there are
3: actually, there's, there's actually more than a thousand. Wow. Certification agencies. Uh, many of them are small local operations that are certifying restaurants and, and those kinds of products. That requires a lot of local attention. Well, the big ones, I mean the Orthodox Union is by far uh, the largest one, uh, and that's the U in a circle. There's mm-hmm. OK there's OK kosher certification, which is the K in a Circle, which is probably number two uh, with that. Um, there's Star K, which is the K in a Star. That uh, began really as a Baltimore agency. It's become a very, very influential agency. Um, there's something called the KAFK, which is a K. It's a kind of a curious, uh, sort of, you know, uh, how to put it, uh, sort, of, sort of a circular label. And the KAFK, you don't see it on as many consumer products, but they're they're very science oriented, and so they're often the certifiers and the sort of you know behind-the-scenes kinds of products. Uh, those are the those are the big four. There's all of the Chicago Benet Council CRC. They also do a lot of products produced out in the, in the Midwest Western area there, um, and um, most of the other labels accept those those products. I mean, you know, you, you have small certification labels that, for example, emphasize organic, kosher, uh, and they will though they will accept the OU and the Kafka certification of ingredients, and they'll add on there. Requirements for organic as well, and they'll put it on there. So you you have an interesting relationship between the big operations and these smaller companies, these smaller kosher labels that are kind of within inside the same set of principles and ideas as as the major ones. Mm.
2: Well, if Coke has the if Coca Cola has the the label on it. Then the extra designation of the yellow cap—is that just a, an easy, recognizable thing to do? I mean,
3: well, that's that's another—that's a that's a complicated kosher law for Passover that we didn't go into. There's a special set of rules for Passover. Some people probably know that you you're not supposed to eat you know bread during Passover mm-hmm. you're supposed to eat matzah, and this is because the Jews couldn't have let, didn't have time to let the bread rise before they left and hurried out of, hurried out of Egypt. Um, there's a related set of rules that the European Jews developed in the medieval era called Kidneyot, which prohibits use of various kinds of legumes and other kinds of products that are deemed to be too similar to wheat, leavened bread, to be used, that you shouldn't risk violating the rules of Passover by using these. Uh, One of the uh, products that is is considered Kidneyot is corn. Uh, this is a recent addition relative because corn, of course, is a, is a you know, product of the New World, not, of, not known in Europe in the, in the 15th century. But corn is not acceptable for use on Passover if you are a, a Ashkenazi uh, Jew, and that means high-fructose corn syrup is not acceptable, and that's what Coke uses for sweetening. So the yellow cap indicates that rather than putting high-fructose corn syrup in Coke, it has sugar in there. It goes back to sugar. Sugar, of course, is what's used back in Rabbi Geffen's day. You didn't have to worry about that. Now high-fructose corn syrup is forced to be everything. Mm. And, and so for Coke to be, Coke, for, for Coke to be uh, kosher for Passover, it has to only use sugar. And, and, and the funny part is, is it's a wonderful, again, unintended consequence, is that there are connoisseurs of Coke who distinguish between the taste of Coke with the corn syrup and with sugar, and they wait for the kosher version, the kosher Passover version, every year. So they, so they can have coke as it used to be. Stock up later. on
2: those yellow-capped cokes. Huh? <laughs> you
3: have exactly, exactly, and I assure you the Orthodox Union was not thinking about that on the
2: yellow capped Well, again, I said there's so many so many very interesting stories and and the meat we will going to just going to have to let people read that book and find out about the wonderful meat stories as well because we are running out of time here, but Roger, it was a pleasure to talk to you and and hear these stories from you and uh, wonderful exploration into this this complex and complicated world, and uh, makes it a little more understandable for us. And it is. Well, I hope, indeed, so. I hope yeah, so. and it's a great great history. You're,
3: um, well, thank you for having have me. I, it's always fun talking on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, it's a good conversation, and I hope people go and, and pick up the book. Available great.
2: On Amazon. Again, it's called Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food by Roger Horowitz. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Roger, and thank you for listening. Again, this has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio.